We turn again tonight to John chapter 4. This morning we read the first 26 verses of John 4. I'm going to begin reading tonight at verse 19. The text is verses 19 through 26. I won't be rereading those verses, so I ask that you pay special attention to those. As we read the chapter, we're going to read through verse 42. So John 4, beginning at verse 19. Remember that Jesus is talking here to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And Jesus had just instructed her about the living water that she needed and that he's the source of that living water. And then Jesus had spoken to her about the five husbands she had and that now she was on her sixth husband, identifying the sin in her life. And then we pick it up in verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now we find in the following verses that this woman believed what Jesus said there, that he is the Christ. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there. Two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. There are many names of Jesus, our Savior, that come out in the beginning chapters of the Gospel according to John. One of those names is Rabbi. He's identified that way earlier in this Gospel account as Rabbi. And that name means Master Teacher. Jesus is Master Teacher. The Samaritan woman understood that Jesus was a teacher. Now, she doesn't use the name rabbi, but in verse 19 she says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. 
but there's that idea there. She understands, she's beginning to understand that Jesus has some authority and that he is a teacher. And thus she goes and asks him a question about worship. And she wants to know what true worship is and where true worship ought to be carried out. And Jesus then gives rich instruction about worship that we're going to be looking at tonight. We ought to see Jesus in the same way that this Samaritan woman saw Him. He's a prophet. More than that, He is our Master Teacher. And we come to Him tonight wanting to know what true worship looks like. What true worship is. But we ought to come then realizing that we're coming to hear Jesus Christ, this Master Teacher, instruct us about worship. That's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important for us to consider what true worship is in this instruction of Jesus Christ because of what's going on in the, the world today. And there's the danger that the world influences our worship. And I think one of the ways in which we see that happening today is that out in the world today, even for us, there's so much entertainment. And you don't have to go very far to find it. Those phones you have in your pockets and You've maybe got an app for YouTube and you watch this exciting video and that exciting video and the next exciting video and this person doing that and that person doing another thing. And then along with that, all the other screens that we have, we're becoming more and more accustomed to being entertained in our daily lives if we have any downtime. If we're finished with work and we're finished with our homework, and we have nothing else to do. But the difficulty is when it comes to Sunday and we're sitting here, what we do here can seem very dull and boring when compared to everything else that we're seeing and taking in throughout the week. A hundred years ago, no one would have thought about worship being dull and boring. Entertainment wasn't at everybody's fingertips like it is today. But yet, so many are saying when it comes to worship that worship must be exciting. There's so much worship that's dull and boring. And they would look at what we're doing here and say it's dull and boring. So, with all of that influence of the world and how it can change the way we think about worship, we need to come to our master teacher and hear what he has to say about worship. But there's another reason this is important. Maybe you never thought of worship as dull and boring, and I'm glad if that's the case. But there is another danger for us, and that is the thinking that, well, if we've been doing what we've always done in the past, and we go through the motions of worship as we've always done, then that's all by itself a worship that is pleasing to God. The danger is that we just go through the motions we do in our corporate worship what we've always done. And so we need to take a look at our worship, our corporate worship, what we do when we gather here on the Lord's Day and examine it according to the instruction that Jesus gives in this passage. We want to know what true worship is before God. Even as this Samaritan woman wanted to know what true worship was before God. May, may we listen to our Savior and what He teaches us in these words that He spoke to the Samaritan woman about true worship. And that's our theme tonight, true worship. We notice first of all in knowledge, secondly in spirit, and thirdly in truth. To understand what Jesus is teaching here about the importance of worship that is done in knowledge, we do have to understand something about the question that the Samaritan woman asks Jesus. Now the first thing that we should look at is why did she ask this question? 
Why does she suddenly change direction here? Jesus has been talking to her about living water, and then he's talking to her about her husband's, And then the woman, in response to that, says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And she launches into a question about worship. Why? Well, there are many commentators who say, well, the reason she does that is the focus has been on her and now she wants to try to change the subject so that the focus is no longer on her. But another possible reason for why she asked the question is she realizes she is in the presence of one who is a prophet. She, she is in the presence of one who is a teacher. And this is a question that has been nagging her. And she wants this prophet to settle the debate that has been going on between the Samaritans and the Jews about worship. But it may not be just one or the other. Maybe it's a combination of both. But whatever her reason is, we're not told exactly what the reason is. So I don't want to dwell any more on that. But we want to understand her question. Her question in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This had been an ongoing question and theological debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, where ought they to worship? The Samaritans worshipped at a mountain. The name of that mountain was Mount Gerizim. And in fact, where Jesus and the Samaritan woman were at Jacob's well was at the foot of Mount Gerizim. In fact, there had once been a temple that the Samaritans had built on Mount Gerizim where they worshipped Jehovah God. Remember, they worshipped Him along with all of their idol gods. Well, they had a temple up there on Mount Gerizim. It wasn't there at this time. It was just a, a heap of ruins at this time when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. But still, the Samaritans were saying it's at Mount Gerizim where we are to worship. The Jews said, no, it's in Jerusalem. Mount Zion, there is where God is to be worshipped. Now we might look at this debate and wonder, how did this debate arise between the Samaritans and the Jews? Well, there is some history to that. And that history is found in Deuteronomy 27. You certainly may turn to that chapter with me if you would like. Deuteronomy 27. You'll remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land of Canaan. And Moses gives this instruction in verses 12 and 13 of Deuteronomy 27. He says there, These, so their some, shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. Then if you look at the verses that follow in Deuteronomy 27, there are these lists of curses, so that those who are on Mount Ebal, they would hear the Levites reading these curses And the people were to respond with an amen to each one of those curses. The idea being that where the people disobeyed God, God is saying He will curse them for it. And they are saying, we agree with this. God ought to curse us if we disobey God in this way. And then if you go on to chapter 28, you'll see that those on uh, Mount Gerizim, They were to hear the blessings of God through the Levites and the people were to respond to each one of those blessings with an amen saying that they knew and understood that there would be a blessing of God in the way of obeying His word and His commandments. Now, what's striking about this is that in the beginning of chapter 27, God instructs His people to build an altar on Mount Ebal and not on Mount Gerizim. So they were to build an altar on Mount Ebal and then offer sacrifices and worship God there. This is why that is striking. That's the mount 
of curses. Why would God tell them to build an altar and worship Him on that mount of the curses? Well, it's because they would disobey. They could not keep God's word faithfully. They needed what was promised in the sacrifice that would be offered there. The sacrifice that pointing them ahead to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. That helps us to understand then why Jesus is giving the instruction then that he does. The Samaritans, they wanted to worship on Mount Gerizim. That was the mountain of blessing. And the idea there is that they were saying that they would be blessed of God because of their obedience. That's the idea of their worshiping there. They were trusting in their works and not the blessing that is found only in a sacrifice that points them ahead to the Christ. So that's the background for the instruction that Jesus gives in John 4. So going back to John 4, notice what Jesus says in response to the Samaritan woman in verses 21 and 22. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. What Jesus is teaching there is that it's not the location of worship that is of utmost importance. But what he's saying is that the true knowledge of salvation is needed to worship God properly. He says to the woman in verse 21, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 22, ye worship, ye know not what? The idea was the Samaritans were worshiping God in their own way. And their own way of worship was based on a wrong knowledge of God and a wrong knowledge of theology. In the end, they were worshiping God like they worshiped their idol gods. They were hoping by their good deeds to appease the anger of this God so that that God would not judge them. And what Jesus is saying is when you have that false knowledge and that false understanding of salvation, it's going to lead to false worship. But then Jesus goes on to say there in verse 22, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. What Jesus is saying there is not that all the Jews will be saved. But what he's saying is that the way of salvation has been revealed to the Jews. The way of salvation had been revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament with all of the feasts and all of the sacrifices that pointed to the Messiah, the Christ to come, the one that they needed to pay for all of their sins. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that the true worship of God's people arises out of a true knowledge of how one is saved. So not just knowledge in general, but the knowledge of salvation. False knowledge, false theology, a wrong understanding of salvation will always lead to worship that is not pleasing to God. In other words, theology is important for worship. The knowledge of salvation is important for worship. Now let's see and understand that very practically. The term worship that's found here in the text, it's, it's a striking word. The idea of that word worship is to kneel in humble adoration before God. The idea here is homage to God or homage before God. And the picturesque idea is kneeling before God. The idea of the word points to the concept of reverence in worship. 
And reverence in worship is awe in worship. Awe of God. This very idea is expressed in many other places in the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation. Call your attention to a a couple of those in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4 verse 10, we read there, The four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We have in this vision a picture of what true worship looks like. As in heaven, there are those who fall down before the throne of God. And they praise that one who is on the throne with words that are glorifying to him. You have the same thing in the next chapter. Chapter 5, verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Worship is to give God the glory that is due to His name. And we give God the glory that is due to His name when we're in awe of the wonder of His grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Think for a moment how theology and the knowledge of salvation impacts worship. If we're like the Samaritans and we think that we're pretty good and we think that our worship is pretty good and that we are worthy to come into God's presence, will we be on our knees in our worship? No, we won't. We'll come in pride. We'll, we'll come just going through the motions. Our, our worship will be robotic. And our worship will be humanistic. Meaning, it will be not only man-centered, but my worship will be me-centered. It, it won't be about God and His glory. It will be about me and my glory and why it is that God ought to bless me. Then our worship ought to be on Mount Gerizim with the Samaritans. You see, theology works through. And the knowledge of salvation works through in our worship. But instead, if we come knowing the greatness of our sin, knowing that we deserve the wrath of God for the sins that we've committed this past week and the sins we've committed this morning and the sins that we've committed today, and we're amazed then at the fact that this holy and right God would save me and save His people and deliver us from our sins and continue to have fellowship with us, is that not going to impact our worship? So that when we come, we're in awe that God would even be pleased to meet us here in this place with all that He knows about me and all that He knows about us, whether it's recently or long ago. So when Jesus teaches us here in this passage to worship in a right knowledge of salvation, He's saying that that's going to have a great impact upon our worship. Now we ought to look at our worship. What about our worship? Is our worship reverent like it ought to be? Well, that begs the question, what, what is reverent worship? And we might think, well, we're all sitting here quietly and knowing shouting out and, and amen and worship is not a free-for-all here in this place. We, we dress appropriately for worship. We, we prepare for worship. And it's easy for us to think that just because there are certain things we don't do and other things we do do, that our worship is reverent worship. But that's not the heart and the essence of reverent worship. The reality is, is that reverent worship is worship, worship that's engaged. It's worship in which we are active. It's worship 
in which we, from beginning to end, are giving thanks and praise to God. We're focused on Him and His glory and His majesty. We're focused on Him and the great things that He has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's reverent worship. Is that your worship? Is that my worship? Active, engaged, focused on where it needs to be focused. And the question follows in the church, how do we recapture this kind of reverent worship? Well, the answer is theology. Know God. Know the gospel. Be filled in your heart with the first love for Jesus Christ. We need to recapture the knowledge of the grace of God and what that means. We we need to recapture even what Jesus says earlier in the Gospel according to John. John 3 verse 16. We know the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's not simply a verse that we're concerned about because we want to get it right. It's a verse that says so much more. It declares the beautiful and amazing love of God for His people. He so loved His people that He gave His only begotten Son. You want to recapture reverent, awe-filled worship in this place? Read passages like that. And be in awe of the wonder of God's love and saving grace in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is teaching us here, first of all, that true worship is worship in knowledge. Now really, the rest of the sermon is about that. My next two points are really developing that concept and that idea more as we look at what Jesus teaches us further in the text when he says that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. So now we turn to that. Jesus' instruction that we are to worship Him in spirit. Jesus is speaking here. You do get the sense that Jesus is saying that the place is not of utmost importance. But instead, the who we worship is of utmost importance. Who we worship and the how of worship follows from that. Jesus emphasizes the greatness of the God that we worship here in this instruction that He gives. He teaches two things about God. First of all, He teaches that God is our Father. And secondly, He teaches that God is Spirit. So to understand what it is to worship God in spirit, we again have to start with theology and who God is as Jesus sets God before us. He's our Father. In many ways, Jesus' instruction about God as our Father is unique. It's unique because that's not a name of God that you find often in the Old Testament. The name of God that you find often in the Old Testament is the name Jehovah. Lord in all capital letters in the King James Version. So that when, you, when the people of Israel heard that name Jehovah God, they associated that name with covenant love. It's like when we hear the name Father, God called Father, we associate that name with love. In the Old Testament, the people associated the name Jehovah with that love. But now Jesus reveals God as Father. What do we learn about God in that name, Father. Well, the first thing we learn about is what He has done so that we are His children and know Him as Father. God has saved us and all of His people to be His children. And of course, the word that we use for that is adoption. God has adopted us to be His sons and His daughters. And how beautiful is that concept of adoption? It wasn't that long ago that a standard bearer was devoted to adoption. Adoption includes that God chose His children 
from all eternity, not based on what they did or what they would do, but He chose His people according to His good pleasure from all eternity, although they are a people who don't deserve to be His children. And along with that, our God so loved these children that He chose to be His own, that He paid the price in the blood of His Son so that we could call Him Father and know Him as Father. As our Father, He did what we could never do for ourselves. And that is redeem us. He gave His natural Son to suffer and die and take His wrath in our place so that we are His children in this life and in the life to come. He made us His children at great expense to Himself. The second thing that that name Father emphasizes is the relationship that we have with God. We know that calling God our Father is another way of expressing covenant. We are part of God's family. Isn't that amazing? We're part of God's family. We're sons and daughters of His. This God is our Father. When we think of that, we think of His love. The love that a father has for his children. A love that never ceases, a love that is always faithful, a love that is never broken. We see His love, and we see that love especially in the gift of His Son. We are part of a forever family. That's a phrase that's used often in the world today, especially when it comes to adoption. This is our forever family. There is one forever family. It's the family of God. And you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, are sons and daughters in this family. But see what that makes us. If you're a son and daughter of this Father, you're a worshiper of this Father. As fathers here on this earth, It might feel good if our children worship us, but we ought never to want our children to worship us. But there is one Father and only one Father who is worthy to be worshipped. As children of God, we are worshippers of God. And so the point is, our worship arises out of the knowledge that God is our Father. It arises out of the knowledge of what God has done to establish this relationship. And it arises out of the knowledge of the constant, unchanging love of God for His children. So that, first of all. The second thing that Jesus emphasizes here about God is that God is Spirit. Literally in the text, we read this, Spirit is the God. Now we read here, God is Spirit. But literally in the original, it's the Spirit is the God. And so it's done for emphasis here, emphasizing that God is Spirit. Now what does it mean that God is Spirit? It's not the easiest concept to get a hold of. The idea of God is Spirit tells us the the kind of being that God is. What this means negatively is He's not a stone God. He's not a wood God like the idol gods. He's not a created God. He's not a mountain God who can only be worshipped in one particular mountain. He's not a God who's limited in any way by time or space. He certainly is not human He is non-material. He cannot be seen physically like you and I can be seen. But that's the negative. What is He? Well, He's spirit. And as spirit, He is something. But this is what He is. He's all of His perfections. He's all of what we call His attributes. So do we see God? Yes, we do. We see God as He's reflected in creation. We see God in His Son, Jesus Christ. We see God in the Holy Scriptures. 
We see Him as He reveals Himself to us in His Word. And that's what's important. We see Him in that way. So the idea then is our worship flows out of that too. Out of our salvation and the relationship that we have with Him. But also the fact that He is a Spirit. Now with that in mind, Jesus teaches us that we must worship God in Spirit. Now, when he says that, he's not referring here to the Holy Spirit, capital Spirit. But he's referring to part of the inner man within us that is called in Scripture, Spirit. For example, we read of that in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, in verses 46 and 47, this is the song of Mary. And she says there, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. So here's Mary worshiping God from her spirit. It's part of the inner man of Mary, and the spirit is part of our inner man as well. What Jesus is teaching them when he says that we are to worship God in spirit is that we are... Not merely to worship God in an external way and focused on the externals, but in a spiritual and inward way. God makes clear here in the words of Jesus that He is not pleased with worship that is mere action. He's not pleased with worship that is merely outward, that is external formalism. If our worship is simply that, God is not pleased. God God emphasizes that throughout Scripture. Think of Psalm 40, verse 6. We read there, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. We might read those words and say, Is that true? I, I thought God did require sacrifice. I thought God did require offering. But what he's saying in that verse and other verses like it is, he's, he's not happy with just the going through the motions of offering sacrifices like, like King Saul did. When he went ahead and offered sacrifices, when he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and lead him and, and the others of Israel in worshiping God. So God warns us of the same thing. He's not simply pleased with the fact that we're filling seats on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. God is not pleased with our simply being here and going through all of the actions of worship. He's not pleased with the fact that we just go through the order of worship and We stand up when we're supposed to stand up and we sit down when we're supposed to sit down and we sing when we're supposed to sing and we confess our faith when we're supposed to confess our faith and when the collection plate goes by, we we put something in there because, well, we don't want to look bad or foolish in front of somebody else that we didn't put something in in the collection plate and that, yeah, our eyes are open most of the time during the sermon Maybe struggle a little bit, but our minds are everywhere else thinking about this thing or that thing or that other thing. God's not pleased with that kind of worship. But instead, worship in spirit occurs when a man and woman and child is moved in the spirit to praise God. We can put it this way. Worshiping in spirit is about direction and movement. It's coming into the presence of God, moving toward God with praise and adoration because God is a God who is moving toward us. He moves toward us in His love and we as His people who know that love, His children who know that love in our worship, this is what we're doing. We're moving toward Him. That doesn't mean we're we're marching here in the building, but very really in our hearts and our minds, what we're doing when we worship God rightly is we're moving toward Him. We do that when we praise Him. We do that when we praise Him for His love, when we praise Him for His mercy, when we praise Him for His grace, when we praise Him for His wisdom, when we praise Him for His power, when we praise Him for His justice and all of the rest that reveals who God is. That's worship. We praise Him for who He is 
and for what he has done. Again, this provides us the opportunity to examine our worship and repent where we need to repent individually and as a church. We're reminded here that God is not pleased with worship that is merely external. And if we continue in that, what God says is, I, I will take that worship away. The church won't even have that. So we're reminded here tonight to worship God in spirit. But there are a lot of wrong ideas about that too we should understand. Some might say, yes, worshiping in spirit is worship that's emotional. And that governs what the worship ought to be. I can remember years ago when I was the pastor here, getting a phone call from someone who just moved into a neighborhood nearby the church. And the question that she asked is, is the worship of your church spirit-filled? And my answer to the question was, well, yes, it is. From what I remember, at least, yes, it is. But maybe not in the way that you're thinking. So I think I asked her, well, what is your idea of spirit-filled worship? And it turns out she was from a Pentecostal background, and she had a Pentecostal idea of what worship ought to be, that um, there's a lot of movement going on in, in worship, and, and uh, it's displayed outwardly and very emotional in the worship as well. Now, I don't mean to say that our worship is not emotional. It ought to be. It ought to be. But again, that's not the focus of our worship. And the danger with just wanting our emotions touched and stirred is that you always need something more to stir those emotions. It's kind of like sugar or caffeine. When you get used to it, to to, to be stirred a little bit more, you you need a little bit more. The same thing happens in emotional type of worship. That you always need something else, this artificial stimulant to to get that emotion flowing again. No, what stirs our emotions is the truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ and the unending and unchanging love of God that we do not deserve in the least. What Jesus is teaching us here is that worship in spirit is worship that is sincere and God-directed. I believe that one of the greatest dangers and threats to the church is worship that is focused on self. That there are too many people in churches today who are worshiping themselves, really, in the name of worshiping God. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on what they get out of the worship. They're focused on what they ought to have in the worship. They're judgmental in the worship. It's all about them and what they want and what they think that they need. Yet with the twist of God and theology, that is part of it. We have to remember that worshiping God in spirit and worshiping God rightly is praising and glorifying Him. It's worship that is sincere And God directed. There's a biblical example of what I'm speaking of here. It's in the prophecy of Zechariah. Second to last prophecy in the Old Testament. In chapter 7. What had happened is that the people had returned to the promised land from the captivity in Babylon. And they were rebuilding the temple and they had almost finished rebuilding the temple while they were doing this and also fighting off enemies who were trying to keep them from rebuilding the temple. They were fasting and they were praying in the knowledge of their dependence upon God. But as the temple was about finished, There was a delegation from Bethel that came of leaders of the Jews who had returned and they asked the leaders of the Jews then if they could stop fasting and weeping. And in Zechariah 7 verse 5, this is what God tells Zechariah to say in response. 
Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And then he goes on, When ye did eat and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? They were doing it simply for themselves. And their desire to stop it and stop worshiping God in that right and proper way was evidence of the fact that they were not sincere and God-directed in their worship. So what about our worship? Is it God-directed, God-focused, sincere, arising from spirits that are moved by the marvelous grace of God? So Jesus teaches us to worship Him in knowledge. He teaches us to worship Him in spirit. And finally, He teaches us to worship Him in truth. There are two ideas that are uh, part of this. The first is this. We cannot worship God properly unless we know who He is. Now, that's not something new in the sermon here tonight. We've talked about who God is. But yet there's something more that can be said about that. We can come to worship with wrong ideas about God. Our practical theology sometimes is not correct. It's not right. Sometimes we can view God as simply a friend to have a chat with like we sit down with someone at a coffee shop. Or we can think of God as some, as I've heard it called, cosmic bellhop who's there when we ring a bell to do whatever we want Him to to do. Or we maybe think of God as someone who's distant and unloving and who doesn't give to us the things that we want. But of course, none of that is truth about who God is. And so to worship God rightly, we must worship Him in truth, in the truth of who He is as the God who never changes and as the God who is always faithful. So we're to worship Him according to who He is. But I'm going to stop there with that. I'm not going to belabor the point because much of the sermon has been about that. But the second thing we want to see and understand here is that we are to worship Him according to the truth of Scripture. That means we are to worship God in a right way as God has told us in His Word how we are to worship. And that's something we're familiar with because every time we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, we hear preaching on the second commandment of the law and the second commandment of the law is the basis for what we know as the regulative principle of worship. We only do in our worship what God commands in His Word. We have many instances of Scripture where God's people did not do that or those who weren't God's people didn't do that. The first instance of worship that was not in truth in the Bible was Cain. Remember that Cain, instead of bringing a bloody sacrifice to offer to God, he brought the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. Abel, he brought a bloody sacrifice, but Cain did not. And thus God was not pleased with the worship of Cain. It wasn't according to what They had been taught about how God is to be worshipped. We know the other instance in the Old Testament that is very familiar to us. It's when the people of Israel at Mount Sinai made a golden calf, or Aaron made the golden calf as they requested it, and they were dancing around that golden calf and worshipping that golden calf in the awful way that the Egyptians worshipped their idol gods. And God was furious about that. And there are many of the people of Israel who were put to death because they worshipped God in that wrong way. They were not worshipping God in truth as He commanded in His Word. So also we remember tonight that God calls us to worship Him in truth according to what He commands in His Word. We must only do in our worship what He commands. Again, In many ways, maybe I don't have to say a lot about that. But a couple of things should be said. You and I are not wise enough or holy enough to invent our own ways 
of worshiping God. Remember, Jesus, master teacher. He's our teacher. We follow him and we do what he says in his word. We must only do what God teaches us in his word. Now we see that there are so many who are departing from that in our day and they're adding all kinds of different things to their worship and we're very much aware of that. But we need the reminder here. We do what we do in our worship because we believe God and His Word has commanded these things. We pray, we sing, we have the reading of Scripture, we have the preaching of the Gospel, we have offerings that are part of this as well. All of this is what God commands us to do in our worship along with the administration of the sacraments. And this is the way that God works and this is the way in which he is to be worshipped here in this place. I'm not talking about the order of worship. That's not found in Scripture. That can be changed and it can be done in different ways. I'm not advocating that, but it can be. You go to a different church and they have different order of worship. That's not wrong. But it's about the elements of worship and what we do in our worship. And so Jesus teaches us tonight, worship God in a right way. It's encouragement for you in your corporate worship and me in my corporate worship. Worship God in the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. Worship God in spirit, moved by the wonder and glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And worship God in a way, here's the how, in the way that God commands in His Word. The outward follows from the inward, which follows from truth and knowledge. May God give us strength to worship Him in a right way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, not only are we thankful for worship, but we're thankful for Thee and for Thy grace and for Thy love and that Thou dost give to us the freedoms we enjoy in this land to gather as we have on this day. We pray that Thou will use this word tonight to excite us for a proper and true worship of Thee on each Lord's Day, so that we may come again next Sunday as those who are moved in our hearts at the wonder and beauty of Thy grace to give Thee the glory and the honor that is Thy due, bowing down before Thee, our Father and our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.